Hey, Heidi. Good evening. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to invite you up to, uh, to, to the speaker. How are you, Heidi? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. I'll tell you, this uh, Maine has a better climate than the rest of the country because it's uh, only like a 65 degrees right now. <laughs> and, oh. Uh, the, it's wet, but uh, hey, I'd rather take the hum humidity than the high temperature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's roasting out here right now. It's 111 degrees or maybe 114 by now. I saw... Well, I follow a lot of uh, Chinese YouTubers uh, all over the world. So in Rome, Italy, they said it's a 45 degrees Celsius, which mm -hmm. is like 105, I think. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Yeah. And in Beijing, they said it's also horribly, horribly hot. And uh, uh, in Moscow, uh, no, in St. Petersburg, oh, no, 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 in Hazastan, in Hazastan, uh, th uh, they said it's a 50 degrees celsius wow holy shit i was like how can you live and uh, you know someone <laughs> do the conversion and uh, what 50 degrees celsius is and uh, but it uh, well i was like something well i'll look it up right now okay yeah 50 degrees <laughs> oh by the way tomorrow i cannot do call in action because i have a bunch of work for for tomorrow i was i i, I have to work wise oh, okay yeah, I kind of thought that maybe we'd we'd be like hashing out something, um, but yeah, if you can't do it, no big deal. Uh, there's always next week, right? Yeah, um, my, I definitely will call Bernie Sanders just to harass him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that would be a, a, a grand idea, and you know, like I I have a few choice words for for Bernie myself. Um, I, I know we wouldn't talk directly to him, but. I'd love to tell his staff about how I devoted a summer um, to, you know, canvassing uh, in Las Vegas. Oh, you did and that? And I don't appreciate, yeah, and I don't appreciate that he sold out to Joe Biden. You know, fuck him. But anyway, um, it's 122 degrees. Holy shit. It's a 50. Yeah. That, that, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's like Death Valley uh, out in California. I don't know if you're familiar with Death Valley. Yes, I read about them. Yes, yes, okay. yes. It is uh, brutal. I mean, uh, this place uh, called Bar Harbor in Maine is on an island called uh, Mount Desert Island. So it used to be called Bar Harbor. It used to be called Eden, <laughs> E D E N. I was like, yeah, in okay. some places, really is like a paradise because it's truly not hot <laughs> and plenty of lobsters and uh, and other good stuff yeah and, but you know in the winter they get those nor'easters so i don't know if you'd really want to yes i agree <laughs> i i think humans should be living like a my uh migrating birds you know birds yes. are they're so smart right they they didn't know where to go and yep, uh, they go where the weather's nice exactly yeah yep. <laughs> My dad, my dad does that. Uh, they, he does what's called a, he's a snowbird and mm -hmm. you know, he's 85 years old. And so like when the weather gets too cold in the Midwest, he comes out here for uh -huh. the rest of the winter. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Fantastic. Yeah, uh, I, well, I hopefully, you know, Las Vegas cool down a little bit in the coming weeks. Uh, I, I know we're only in the mid of July and uh, I'm going to stick around here in, 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 you know, in this Bar Harbor area, uh, near a national park called Acadia National Park and, uh, not going anywhere. I actually find out a best spot in this national park that has the best cell phone, uh, reception. Yeah. So, you so said, I, you're you're totally clear. That's yeah. awesome. You're not cutting out at all. Yeah. Yes. So uh, right now I'm actually in the parking lot of a supermarket, but this is like a downtown Bar Harbor area, right? But during the day I cannot do it here because you know there will be enforcement of parking policies and all that. But I know now where to go because in that particular spot in the national park, it's right on the cliff. Uh, overseeing the ocean, overlooking the ocean, and nice. it's just up and that signal is like a perfect, perfect. So, so yeah, I, that I, is, yep. that is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome that you have a job uh, that allows you to do that, and also you know, like uh, not having a you know family you got to deal with or whatever. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Just want to be free for for a while, and uh, yeah. yeah. Also, also, the state department has renewed my passport. Is sending it to my Delaware residence, so I'm gonna have a friend to FedEx that to me, so I take a I can take a ferry across to uh, to Canada a little bit, and oh, uh, cool. so just to get away from the heat. <laughs> so, so yeah. Well, Hell that, yeah. That's enough about me. I, I don't want to talk too much about myself. <laughs> and I'm well, doing it. I, before, yeah. before you stop talking about yourself, uh, were you going to, you said you were going to make it out west at some point. Are you going to wait yes. until fall? Okay. Yes. 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 I think, uh, I think, uh, uh, after this uh, summer trip, I think I should return to my revolutionary base in Delaware and then, uh, planning going west and, uh, uh, I'm very eager to go. I'm very eager now because I'm disappointed. I have not seen a moose in, in, in the, in this area. Uh, then it just makes me feel I need to go to like, you know, uh, Alaska. <laughs> you know, literally, I need to drive. Uh -huh. to well, well, also, I think they have them in, uh, Montana. So yeah, in Wyoming, yes. that area. Yeah, America is just too big and too beautiful not to see all this. I mean, this is just. Yeah. You know, this Bar Harbor is just one incredible place. And I'm trying, I'm trying to get my blueberry ice cream every day <laughs> as a routine because they're just so delicious. Right. And, uh, yeah. So, and yes, I, are uh, you gonna, mm -hmm, are, go are you gonna make an effort to, uh, say like in San Francisco and, and, uh, part like LA, yes. uh, Skid Row, like talk to some homeless people? Cause well, that would be I'm awesome. In Philadelphia, there is a more famous place, a place called Kensington. Kensington. You, okay. you can Google that. The, the homeless situation in Kensington, Philadelphia, it's a Kensington Avenue. Uh, it's world renowned. <laughs> like they are widely, uh, broadcast on YouTube in China. Like people have so many okay. comments. It is a horrific. It is a, in my opinion, it's worse than California. Cause in my opinion, it's this California. And Florida are actually is a good place for homeless to, I mean, not, not, not Florida. California is attractive homeless because the climate is not, is very mild all year around. Yeah. So you can live yeah. in a tent, right? Uh, I was uh, in February when I was in DC, I see the tent in Washington, DC. I mean, it's still pretty cold at night in, in February. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And I don't think you can survive that. And uh, but you know, if California, it, it's a way better. In my opinion. Yeah. Well, also part of the history of it is the Dust Bowl. I don't know if you've ever seen like um, or read John Steinbeck. Or no. seen like the the there's a play called Oklahoma. I, I think they touch on it too. Anyway, the the what happened was a lot of people from the middle of the country uh, in the early part of the 19th, or I guess it'd be the 20th century. Um, they were uh, the the agricultural practices uh, that they were um, doing was like depleting the soil of moisture you know, or they, they weren't doing it right. Let's just put it that way. And so, and like it, on top of that, there was a drought. And so it turned the, the area of like Oklahoma and and the plains part into a dust bowl. That's why they call it the dust bowl. Anyway. So a lot of those people moved uh, to California just to, in order to try to survive. Yeah. They were like in huge numbers. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why, you know, there's, there's some history with that too, but this Kensington area, I'd never heard of it. That sounds interesting. Kensington, Philadelphia, the homeless situation, the homeless camping, uh, the, the uh, drug uh, uh, pandemic uh, over there is incredible. It's, it's all, it's, it's oh, I'm sure people people like living like that they got nothing to live for so yeah. why not do drugs hell yeah yep. 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 well so you know uh well i i agree with you uh bar harbor uh 11 years ago i brought my kids here they're all grown up now uh we all enjoyed it but i felt bad that i i always want to stay in the place to fully appreciate the entire you know environment know that so, mm-hmm. so now I was able to do that. I remember we eat in a Chinese restaurant and, uh, and I talked to the waitress. She said, you don't want to live here because in winter, it's like a six month of a solid ice and snow in this year. Yeah. I say, I yeah. And so we, we, mm-hmm. go ahead. Are, go ahead. Oh, mm-hmm. I was just going to ask, are you uh, still married? No, no, I, oh. I separated a long time ago and, uh, and, uh, I find out, uh, as Kramer said, marriage is a prison, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, I'm 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 j- jail broken. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so, okay. okay. So. I was I was gonna say that's a hell of a hell of a wife that you got. That's just letting you wander the country. But yep, that's. Cool. I'm glad I'm not alone. I'm just very happy. I I met a twenty five year twenty five year old guy in from Florida. He told me he lived in his trucks for he lives in his truck for five years straight. I said, I only did it for seven months, but I do enjoy it so far. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, he's only 25. And uh, and I got so many other people uh, like telling me their stories, uh, homeless people included, uh, by the way, especially when I was in Florida. But here I have not seen many homeless. Most people are just, they're just, uh, you know, campers. They're just campers, you know. Right, right. Temporary. Yeah. Yep. I guess like I, I have, I always buy cars where if I have to, I can live in them because I, I've, I've had homeless, uh, you know, like, uh, experience in my past where I was like desperate and I had to sleep in my car. So Mm. now I have like a Hyundai Santa Fe where Mm. if I put the seats down, I can, Mm. uh, you know, it's perfect for a bed. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have, I saw a lot of younger people. Uh, couples, they actually spend the night in their car. Uh, they are very young. I'm pretty sure they're, they're on a road trip or, or, or some, some, something. But this, 
this 25-year-old guy, he is serious because I saw his solar panel set up. He is a fully loaded oh, cool. solar panel. And uh, I actually disagree with him on the, uh, on the electric electricity part because I do it differently. Uh, I have solar panel, but, but, but I left it behind because I find out that uh, my consumption of electricity has to be guaranteed, which means that I actually have a two battery, uh, which uh, one of them can be charged up in two hours by running a generator. Uh, okay. that two hours, uh, will last me about two days at, at the minimum. Nice. With the two, uh, literally, I don't need to run the generator for three days straight until the, th you know, every three days I run the battery for two hours. Uh, if I use a solar panel, I have to park my truck under the sun, which will, you know, even though my, my truck is heavily insulated with the wolves, and and the thinsulate, uh, but still it will be too hot. I actually need to be in the shades, you know, because okay. I, I don't have air conditioning. And uh, in fact, I am trying thinking about getting an air conditioning because I find out this battery is working out very well, and uh, and the truck is so powerful, uh, I can load a little bit more stuff. So, uh, but it, it is uh, interesting. I mean, I joke with people. I said if you are sent to the space station as an astronaut you have to learn how to live in a small living space i'm mm -hmm. trying to do exactly the same <laughs> the only difference yeah. is that i'm on land i'm not in space they live in a very small you know they have to know how to brush tea differently they have to know how to go to bathroom differently well i'm just trying to experiment the same thing so yes yeah it's exactly it's really not that difficult you can go to uh gyms or truck stops you know to do laundry and and uh clean up and yep. yeah yep. it's not that difficult but it does suck so yeah. if you're not like choosing to do it yeah so. exactly so okay let me get started so uh i had a i, I commented on this a harvard uh, admission case uh last sunday and uh, sure enough these two uh well-respected african-american intellectuals talk about it too two days ago and i found it to be fascinating too i i actually you know i was in the rush i i uh, i i dm'd uh Biden, who is an attorney and who is also african-american i would love to hear his take on that and uh so without further ado these two uh guys his their names are glenn laurie and the john mcwater uh glenn teaches at the brown university i know brown university is a very prestigious university uh jfk jr went there uh 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 john uh, mcwater he teaches at the uh, columbia and uh so these two when these two guys speaks i do listen carefully try to get a hold of what do they mean so in today's episode i'm just going to play their one hour podcast which i find out to be very very relaxed very very thoughtful and uh, you may not agree with them uh personally i don't disagree with them uh i don't have any specific critics of what they said but i have some i want to point some other areas that i wish the two uh uh, uh had covered they did not that's why i want to bring their voices in and add some of my additional comments and make it more complete because last Sunday, after I finished this Harvard admission case episode, I 
I forgot to mention an important practice. Remember, I have said Harvard admission policy. I called it is for John to rob Peter to pay Paul. No one has treated that case as、uh, the policy as, as such. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. By plain reading, everybody will say robbing Peter to pay Paul is not good, right? I actually forgot to mention a actual practice of a robbing Peter to pay Paul in America's past. This happened in Africa. In fact, I'm going to challenge Rudy to find out what in the history of the United States when. We did a、uh, rob Peter to pay Paul in Africa. I'm going to talk about it. So, so without further ado, I'm just going to play what they talk about、uh, after the Supreme Court handed down、uh, striking down the affirmative action policy in the Harvard admission、uh, case. Rank. I mean, everybody at the lower-ranked university on that argument is being deprived of an opportunity. Not just the black student. Did you ever stop to try to justify the difference in opportunity between the one who went to the top-ranked place and the one who went to the medium-medium-ranked place in the first place? No. And the leftists should catch on to this. No, you were too busy counting beans by race to take note of the actual structure of inequality in the society, which was not racial. Uh, at all. Hello, everybody. This is the Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. I'm with my conversation partner, John McWhorter.、Uh, we're Ivy League professors over here. I teach at Brown. He teaches at Columbia. He writes for the New York Times. I have a Substack, and、uh, I am、uh, happy to report that the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research sponsors the Glenn Show, and That additional support for the Glenn Show is provided by ACTA, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, particularly for the conversations that John and I are having. So we're here every other week. We're back. How you doing, John? Good. Very, very, very good. Affirmative action show, Glenn. Okay. Let me see. It was last week. This is、right? Saturday. So. Um, two weeks ago, I, two weeks ago, yeah, it was yeah, the week before last. In fact,、uh, I was out in、uh, Texas at, at、uh, in Dallas at the University of Austin's Forbidden Courses summer、uh, summer school. You know, two weeks of、uh, lectures and seminars and whatnot on all manner of things that hosted by this new startup university that、uh, I'm very excited about. But in any case, my、uh, seminar was on race and inequality, and it happened on Thursday that the decision came down from the Supreme Court in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina affirmative action case. And the banner headline that comes out of that is that affirmative action has been ended by the Supreme Court. This would appear to be very momentous.、Uh, gosh, we have to devote at least.、Uh, One of our conversations to exploring the full implications of it. It cut out completely now. Just saying.
Can you guys hear the audio at all? Heidi, can you hear the audio at all? Okay, let me let me try to play again. And hard hard for me to listen to over the past ten days. It's this idea that people take race into account. That little phrase. And what that's supposed to mean is that everybody has equal qualifications in terms of grades and test scores. And then somebody decides, well, okay, we're going to split up the pie this way in order to have a representative population. Now, if that's all the taking race into account meant, then only the occasional Martinettish idiot would have any problem with it. Everybody knows that's not what it is. Taking race into account is a polite, doily, anti-Macassar, fig leaf euphemism for black and Latino <laughs> students. <laughs> I don't know what that was. That was a wonderful, uh, you know, string of adjectives. Those were the ones that came. But it is black and Latino students are admitted with significantly lower, not just very slightly, but significantly, not catastrophically, but significantly lower grades and test scores than everybody else. That is what is meant by taking race into account. And so... When I listen to everybody talking about all of this, I'm always thinking, suppose you have to sub in the real words and people can think about all well all they want, but it's not taking race into account. It is what justifies lowering standards. And Glenn, some things do. But the question is whether that's the case in 2023 with all brown skinned people, as in brown being black and Latino, Native American, not South Asian. That's a whole other thing. Well, your point is that uh, taking uh into account doesn't tell me how much it's being taken into account. And in what way? And that, that, and therein lies the whole ball game. I mean, for example, people talk about uh, legacies. They say no more, you know, you got a legacy affirmative action. Why not racial affirmative action? And I'm not here defending or attacking legacies. I'm just pointing out that unobserved in that uh, conversation is, well, what extent is the differences between the marginal legacy admit and the marginal reject? Is it 50 points, 75 points versus 200 points, 300 points, uh, which is what you're seeing on the racial uh, comparison. And that's a not small fact. That's a, that's a significant fact. But I'm just in awe of the, you know, we had, uh, the uh, Baki case, uh, this is 1978. This is Justice Powell's controlling opinion. This is the establishment of an exception to the uh, colorblind implications of the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, allowing for racial discrimination in the service of the compelling interest of pedagogic interest under the free speech and uh, entitlements of the universities to have their orchestration of the mission of education, diverse, diverse in terms of uh, racial identity. And that had been, uh, and it reaffirmed in 2003 in the Greta uh, University of Michigan uh, uh, case where uh, Sandra Day O'Connor observed 25 years from now, I hope we wouldn't be in this business and so on and so forth. I won't rehearse the whole thing. I'm just saying. We're, we're 50 years down the line here in this fiercely contested thing. And when you read the opinions of Justice Roberts, the concurrence of Justice Thomas, the dissent of Justice Sotomayor, 
the concurring dissent of Justice Jackson, when you read these opinions, you, you know, foundational issues are being engaged. I mean, uh, did the framers of the 14th Amendment genuinely intend to impose a colorblind constraint on state action for which the exception of affirmative action is no longer justified? That, and that's what the court ruled. And uh, I'm wondering how... You, what you were telling me, I'm sorry to go on so long, John, that you were uh, debating this uh, question at the Monk Debates uh, Forum. And, and I wonder how smart legal minds uh, on the um, pro-affirmative action side of this case are parsing it and, and what they're doing uh, with, you know, these very strongly worded statements coming from the conservative majority about uh, the uh, the inappropriateness of a social agenda of race egalitarianism overriding the entitlement of people not to be discriminated against because of their race. Yeah, I think the going idea is that there are times when that kind of colorblindness is to be suspended in acknowledgement of the profound stain of injustice that's been enacted, especially upon black people in the United States. And from, for example, a monk debate that I did. I think I'll, it was with Randall Kennedy, the, the Harvard Law Professor, Black Harvard Law Professor. Our friend, our friend Randall Kennedy. respect very much. The idea was that even being a middle class or an affluent black person today means that you suffer certain disadvantages, certainly not in a way that you would have 50 years ago, but they're still there. And that those disadvantages that you suffer in terms of attitudes that might be held against you overtly or not overtly in terms of the fact that you might be middle class in terms of income, but you don't have the accumulated wealth in terms of the fact that you may be middle class, but technically in your neighborhood, there are a certain number of bad apples, et cetera, that there might not be in the white neighborhood in the TV show, Stranger Things, that sort of thing. So the idea is that being middle class and black or affluent and black still is enough of a disadvantage that standards should be changed. And Randy was fine with the idea that we talk about what it actually is. He said that we're not at the point where standards don't need to be changed. I, quite honestly, just disagree. I, th I think that... Bluetooth disconnected. Standards need to be changed under conditions starker than those, especially given the endless distances, as in lowering standards, will always create, especially after 1965 in the Immigration Act. It's no longer a matter of this Manichaean opposition between white people and black people. Since 1965, so many people have come from Africa, so many people have come from the Caribbean, but especially the Asian case at this point, that we need a whole new calculus because to dismiss all of these Asian American parents and their children as naive or racists or not liking that their best might not even get them into Harvard, whereas a black or a Latino person doing very good definitely gets into Harvard. It's reasonable to have a problem with that on the basis of what goes on with your own kid. And those kinds of lawsuits, that kind of dissonance was never going to stop. Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, 
So I, I'm thinking of the stereotyping point. As I recall, uh, just the structure of Justice Roberts' uh, opinion, where he finds against uh, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, uh, and finds that racial affirmative action is practiced there violates the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This cannot be overemphasized. This is very important. The structure of the argument there is it's being undertaken on behalf of objectives that are virtually immeasurable and unverifiable. You tell me diversity promotes the pedagogic mission of the university, but you can't really show me how. You make various assertions about university preparing a diverse leadership for the future of the country, but the links between what you're doing at the admissions office and the achievement of those goals is tenuous. Uh, it, it's hard to see. So how can this be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling interest when it's uh, virtually impossible for judicial review to ascertain whether or not those objectives are being met? You know, this kind of thing. Uh, I thought that was, you know, a, a, a very sort of central point. Uh, he says the court's only allowing affirmative action if it's uh, use of race uh, in uh, this kind of uh, decision, if it's not used as a negative against any racial group. And how can you say it's not being used as a negative against Asians? Admissions is a zero-sum activity. If you let in some on a special dispensation, there are others who are not going to be let in in virtue of that special dispensation. And manifestly, that's the case of Asians. He actually has a table in his opinion, that's taken right out of Peter R.C. Diakono's brief, which stratifies the different levels of academic qualification and compares the admissions rates across the racial groups. And it's absolutely devastating. So Asians are being discriminated against. And this is ironic, right, that this is a non-white group that are alleging injury on behalf of a program that is supposed to be undertaken to benefit non-whites. And you have to now parse you have to parse between an African-American from a family with two college graduates and professional lives living in a leafy suburb somewhere who happens to be African-American and an Asian-American applicant from a possibly two-bedroom apartment somewhere in a, in a tenement that's uh, scraping out a, a bare living, but the kid has somehow managed to ace the test. And to use the blackness and Asianness as the defining characteristics of those two people in my hypothetical, and, and argue in favor of the one of, of, over the other based on the blackness or the Asianness of them is stereotyping. It's not any longer an individual assessment. It's taking people as if they were avatars of some abstract category and then chopping their rights up based upon that. And this is, this is gut level stuff. This is very, very basic stuff. So what is Randy Kennedy's retort? to, uh, this is the second prong of Justice Roberts' four-point uh, rejection of affirmative action, the first prong being it's on behalf of indefinite objectives, but the second prong being that it's necessarily injurious to some people on basis of their race. How does he get around the fact that that would appear on its face to be a violation of the 14th Amendment? Well, in um, our discussion, it didn't happen to come around to that specific prong. I'm sure that he has a coherent answer. But obviously, what you're saying is simply true. You didn't just express an opinion. You just expressed a truth. And anybody who's following these issues knows it. And yet, what people do is they, they always put their hand back behind their neck and look off into the distance. And they'll <laughs> say something like, well, the thing is, we've got to, got to bring black people into opportunity. And if you don't go to Yale or Harvard, then apparently 
you don't have any access to opportunity. I've been seeing so many op-ed pages saying variations on that. And it comes down to something very simple, which the person going like this knows very well. There are so many schools. Let's go to SUNY Purchase. Let's go to any one of the Cal states. Let's go to one of those one of those universities that has Wesleyan in its name in the Midwest. <laughs> Could you say to the staff there working their butts off to get their seniors into jobs as lucrative and promising as possible? All the people who are there trying to shunt their graduates into being productive and successful members of society. Could you say to them, you know, it's too bad that it doesn't work here. You know, you're at UC Santa Cruz and, you know, all these black and Latino students are cut off from opportunity. It's too bad they didn't get to go to Rice or Stanford or Yale. Everybody knows that's a ridiculous cartoon. Is it really true? And, folks, for the comment section, yes, Archidiacono et al. have been answered by the economist Zachary Bleemer. And Zachary Bleemer's <laughs> work has gotten around as if it kind of deep six to Archidiacono. No, folks, and I'm sorry, we don't have time to read everything. I certainly don't. But read Bleemer. Read both of his papers. There, there's a second one. It doesn't do anything different than the first one in that the fact is this. The takeaway is this after you look at all the, the tables. Did Prop 209, which ended racial preferences in California in the late 90s, lower the income of black and Latino people who are now, believe it or I can't believe it's been this long, they're now grown-ups married with children. Did it lower their incomes? Latinos, yes, somewhat, although, of course, a little something called 2008 might have had something to do with it. But <laughs> black incomes were not lowered. The media wasn't interested in that. Prop 209, if you have any way of drawing some sort of link between Prop 209 and people's earnings 30 years later. I'm not sure I quite understood that, and I'm not sure it's because I'm not an economist. But if you do, <laughs> then, frankly, black people stayed the same. So put your hand behind your neck and do that thing where you look over my shoulder. Those are the facts. And so what all I of this is... I just got to say this. As, as the economist in our bunch, I'm very impressed, John. I'm very impressed. You're down in the weeds, man. Gleamer, is, as I understand, is a graduate student of David Cards at Berkeley and he's done this study of the impact of Proposition 209. It's a carefully econometric investigation, and it's being held up as a defense of uh, affirmative action. And but but John is on top of it. He says he's got two papers, not just one. Card, yeah, by the way, was the expert witness for Harvard in the litigation, who was the opposite number to Peter Arcidiacono in that whole uh, in that whole uh, contestation. But yeah, uh, the the paper has been oversold. This is Bleemer. Uh, work has has been oversold by uh, some of the defendants. Glenn, I didn't. I, I like quick, it. quick interruption. I didn't know he was yeah. a grad student. I I didn't know that he was that young, and so now I'm feeling like I was talking too high and mighty. But frankly, it, it was oversold as making that point. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sure he's an assistant professor somewhere by now, and that this project has been going on for years, and it developed out of his uh, out of his dissertation. This kind of thing. But uh, I I want to come back to this point about how going to the uh, State University of New York and purchase, if that's the uh, campus that you were referring to, is not exactly a death sentence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Versus to going to Cornell or something like that. It's not, it's not exactly the end of the world. No. And the elitism, and, and this comes through, and Justice Thomas does allow himself a little bit of uh, bitterness and, and a kind of sarcasm in, in some quarters of his report. I mean, for example, this is an aside to my main point about elitism, but I'll just say this. Thomas goes out of his way to point out that Harvard discriminated against Jews back in the day. 
and that the University of North Carolina, the other defendant in this case, was an openly segregationist campus until, you know, the Jim Crow era got brought down. And he says, these are discriminators. Why should we trust them? They're, they're basically, they're asking to trust us and saying, look, we got this. We're creating a cadre of American leaders and we're going to make it diverse and everything's going to be fine. Trust us. And it's, it, it, Thomas is saying like, why should we trust them? <laughs> this court has a long history of not trusting discriminators. I think he cites a bunch of cases all down the line, man. I mean, Tom, yeah, people are going to get mad at Clarence Thomas. And I'm just going to say this. Y'all can get mad at me if you want to. I found his opinion to be magisterial. Uh, I found the depth that he went into in expositing the, uh, the uh, legislative history of the 14th Amendment was comprehensive and, you know, it was historian-like in terms of the level of detail and completeness. And the argument that what the framers intended was at, that it be a non-discrimination, not an equalizing mandate, a mandate that restricts the state from using race to discriminating people, not an instrument to mitigate and rectify the consequences of historical exigency. I, I, I found that argument to be quite compelling. But on this, on this elitism thing, People don't see the irony in this. Affirmative action is actually parasitic on inequality. In, in other words, it says, in order to get a good job, you have to go to Harvard or Berkeley uh, or Rice or, or someplace which is a very exclusive place that has 30,000 applications for 2,000 seats. In, in, in order to really make it in America, they... they pat themselves on the back. We're creating the elite. They presuppose that their portal is the only portal that you can pass through to get into the, to the, to the elite. Now, and then they say, but therefore we have to be racially diverse, but we are also very, very specialized and selective and elite. And hence the only way to do that, given the fact that there are racial disparities in the distribution of performance, is to use different standards by race. That is to say, to violate the 14th Amendment. Now, they don't have to be so elite, or perhaps I should say, we don't have to be so elite. The, the idea that a black student who couldn't get into a ultra-selective university and has to settle for a, a lower-ranked university has been deprived of an opportunity presupposes, I mean, everybody at the lower-ranked university on that argument is being deprived of an opportunity, not just the black student, did you ever stop to try to justify the difference in opportunity between the one who went to the top ranked place and the one who went to the medium, medium ranked place in the first place? No. And the leftists should catch on to this. No, you were too busy counting beans by race to take note of the actual structure of inequality in the society, which was not racial uh, at all. So you know, it's um, that's all true. What people are doing is reciting lines. That thing where you put your hand behind your neck and you talk about opportunity, you're training yourself not to think too hard about the truth that you just said. It's, it's like, um, what is it in a partridge in a pear tree, the Christmas carol? Um, is it four four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves? Right, two turtle four, doves four calling birds. What's a calling yeah. bird? You ever thought about that? We all learn to say it. What, what's a calling bird? Who would write the lyric that way? It was actually a particular kind of bird. They were called collie birds. And it got changed to calling bird because nobody knew what a collie bird was. So you just say, four <laughs> calling birds. You just recite it. That's what this thing is about opportunity. You say, well, we have to create the elite. 
as if the elite only comes from 36 schools. Everybody knows it doesn't work. And the sad thing, Glenn, is that what I see in it is a kind of racism if people aren't black or if people are black, a certain sense that our identity is something separate from that of whiteness and that therefore there are certain things that we should not be expected to do. I think what people really think is that middle-class black kids should not be expected to perform at that level, that it's immoral to look at that brown face and yeah. say, you have to do as well as that Jewish kid from Scarsdale, as that Chinese-American kid from Scarsdale, and that South Asian kid from Queens. You have to do as well as them. The past is the past. The present isn't perfect. But you, if you did not grow up disadvantaged, you have to do as well as everybody else. And I can tell that a certain kind of white person, roughly the kind who reads the New York Times and, and listens to NPR, is very uncomfortable espousing that. Like when people talk to me about what I'm thinking, what I hear often is, yeah, I get it, but there are certain things I disagree with. And what they disagree with is they can't imagine looking that middle-class black kid in the eye and saying, okay, affirmative action is over for you. And they're especially uncomfortable with the fact that, yes, at first, the numbers of us would go down, as they did at the UC schools, and then went back up. But yes, there were some times when there weren't as many black kids on campus. I was there for the last 10 minutes of that when I taught at UC Berkeley. And you know, none of those kids wound up dead. None of those kids wound up in jail. They went to UC Santa Cruz and UC San Diego and by and large did very well. And here we are. The world kept spinning and black incomes did not go down in California. But I think a lot of people are trained to think that to imagine that those numbers would go down and to say to a middle-class black kid, we're not going to give you set-asides anymore. You have to do as well as everybody else. Makes them bad people. And Glenn, I can imagine feeling that way if I were white too, given what we're steeped in. But it's at the point where that sense of guilt that those people feel at expecting the best of me or my children is obsolete. It was time for it to go. And this decision is going to make it harder to work on the basis of that unintentional essentialism that I think is part of this whole thing. So you talk about how the observer, the well-meaning white supporter of affirmative action may be selling short middle-class blacks by, in effect, assuming, presuming that they can't be expected to achieve the same degree of excellence. And what I'm thinking about is the other side of that equation. What about the middle-class what about black middle-class society itself, suburban Atlanta, suburban Houston, suburban uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, the children of all the people, some of whom are beneficiaries themselves of affirmative action in a time past who have penetrated into the upper middle and upper echelons of American society, of the economy, corporate sector, of the entertainment sector, and, and, on, and on and on. What about them? Does affirmative action, the need for it, the wailing and moaning about how the numbers will go down, implicitly indict them for not living up to the potential of their middle classedness? <laughs> Does it expose their failure? You know, um, yeah, they, they, I mean, cause, let me just finish this thought, John, if you uh -huh. if you don't mind, because the implicit argument is, like you said, you said it explicitly. You said, okay, he's middle class, he's black, but he's still black. The black experience is carrying a weight. He lived in a neighborhood where there were poor black people that were close by, or he bears the scars, et cetera, et cetera. And excuse me for daring to notice that this sounds awful lot like belly aching and an excuse. 
you know, an excuse for the failure in the face of a challenge to produce the cadres from our most uh, well-endowed and fortunate number to actually perform. Uh, and this crutch of affirmative action is now taken away, exposing the underperformance in, in a radical way. And that's got to be terrifying to people. I'm talking about black people. I'm talking about the people who are going to want to call the Supreme Court rolling back the clock on our progress, being terrified by the existential challenge that this decision confronts them with. There is no fig leaf. Here you are in America. The doors are open. We're judging people on their merits. Your numbers are going down. That's kind of on you, bro. It's hard. And it's, um, it's unpleasant. But it's honest and it's logical. And, you know, I want to do a quick reminder here, folks. We're, we're not talking about taking race into account. We're talking about do you lower standards? And if anybody's saying, but standards aren't lowered, you're lying. What we're talking about is lesser grades and lesser test scores, not abysmal, but significantly lesser, being allowed as admissions criteria for black and Latino students as opposed to others. That's been soundly proven all over the country for decades. There's no question about it. That's what we're talking about, not something as abstract as taking race into account. And the issue is, you know, how long do you do this? And, you know, I have to, I, I have to be the old guy shouting from his backyard. I've seen this because I happen to be at UC in the late 90s, and I listened to all of these earnest people getting up and talking about resegregation, getting up and making it sound like most black kids at UC Berkeley in 1995 were poor when all but none of them were anything like it, and I checked. It wasn't what they were saying. And so many people were saying things like that black. I remember one one person verbatim. Um, somebody got up and said to a cheering audience, few black students have access to adequate education. What's few? What are you talking about? What are the figures? Is it really that bad? Is it really 1910? But of course, everybody's clapping because this person is supposedly saying the right thing. And really, all of that apocalyptic rhetoric that I saw, I saw so much of it in 95, 6, and 7, was, was, was useless, and it was inappropriate because that's not what happened. Laced all throughout all of this soapbox rhetoric was an implication that UC Berkeley itself was a racist institution that was on some level, in some way, somewhere within the warp and woof, the suits were in favor of excluding black people. The idea was that UC made, needed to make black people feel welcome, as in admit black people with lower test scores and grades than others. That's what the welcome euphemism means. And it didn't happen. Now, UC has pretty much made up for the drops that there were then through strategies that are not about just saying, you're brown, you get in. They tried to pull that through the back door for a few years afterward, and they got called on it. And so it can happen. And so if UC did it, then why in the world are we talking now as if this decision is going to take us back to 1960 when college campuses in the United States are probably the least racist in any sense spaces on the planet Earth in the history of Homo sapiens, which extends 300,000 years back? Why are we saying that? It's kabuki. 
everybody is doing a kind of performance and it's time for it to stop. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. I mean, performance seems to be the, the order of the day and, and not just on this issue, on, on a lot of issues. Isn't that how race is getting enacted in, in American po political culture through performance? Yes. It is. So, you know, John has moved on campus. I I have a number of thoughts. I follow them on Twitter and Facebook. Well, I, I have a number of thoughts. I, I let me. Uh, Clarence Thomas voted uh, with the majority, of course. <laughs> he benefited from affirmative action himself. So did you, John. So did I. How dare he slash we pull up the ladder after ourselves, etc. Ad nauseum. Your rebuttal. <laughs> That is what, you know, it's funny. I haven't heard as much of that as I was expecting, but it's, yeah. it's frequent, frequent response. And there are two quick ones. One is that if earlier in your life, you didn't see the problem with something and then you come to see that problem later, the idea that you have no right to open your mouth if you benefited based on how you're feeling as a more mature and experienced person, you can't open your mouth because that ladder was there for you. When you might be thinking that the latter shouldn't have been there, that is muzzling. That's at best a debate team trick. It has nothing to do with any kind of justice. And I also think that people misunderstand and I genuinely misunderstand. You don't apply for affirmative action. It's not like you go online and you fill out a form asking to be processed that way. In the time <laughs> that we've been around, it's just the way you're seen. You can't avoid it, frankly. And I can definitely say that in my situation, when I was you know, 15 and then even 22, I was a hobbyist. I was doing a lot of theater. I was doing all sorts of things. I, these issues didn't really come to my mind strongly until I started teaching at Berkeley and watching so many people walking around lying. It offended me. But I wasn't really thinking about it that much. And so, yeah, I can definitely chart where affirmative action affected my pathway. I spell it out explicitly in one, my book, Losing the Race, and two, the piece that I wrote in the New York Times recently about my own experiences as subject to racial preferences. Yeah, they were there. But I honestly believe that at that late point, for me, all of this is around, you know, the 1988 and then 1993. It was obsolete then. And there's no way you're going to tell me that I'm not allowed to say it. And if anybody thinks, that if I say it, I therefore should resign my job at Columbia and not write for the Times and I guess I'm supposed to go wash cars or something. <laughs> well, again, once again, that's a performative thing to ask of somebody. And so I insist on having my say. And I'm not pulling in ladders. I'm just saying that the ladder should be about people who are disadvantaged, which anybody who has this objection is thinking is the same thing as being black. Well, that was true in 1966, sort of. But things have changed. What kind of ladder? That makes sense. The word, yeah, it makes it. I, I uh, confirm. I agree with everything you just got to be saying. But I would add. I mean, it's the worst kind of ad hominem. L listen to what they say. You're pulling up the ladder after you. That's a, that's an explicit statement about your motive. Mm -hmm. You're trying to deprive people. You know, for, it it presupposes a certain presumption of loyalty. You're black. They're black. You know, you, you, you're kind of supposed, you, you should be in solidarity with them, but instead you arrogate yourself this position of opposing 
the very means that they would, you know, et cetera. Uh, it, it doesn't say a person could change their mind. It, it, it doesn't allow for the fact that circumstances might be different 50 years on. Uh, it's it's a, a re, playing with words. It's a kind of rhetorical trick. It, it's an effort to uh, guilt trip a person without making an argument. You, you, you don't even bother to rebut their argument. You go straight to what kind of person they are and attempt to discredit them on the basis of them being hip, a hypocrites. So, you know, it's a cheap shot. It's, it's just a very, very cheap shot, whether it level to Justice Thomas or you or me or anybody else. You know what else? It there's is? another question. Yeah, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, John. Lazy. Because no. what it is, it's, is a it's a cartoon. It's this person who thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to climb up this ladder. Now I'm going to pull this ladder in. Fuck all you down there. Who is that? What person yeah. like that would get married? What person like that would have any friends or be able to sleep at night? It's a cartoon character. <laughs> lazy, lazy caricature. That's all I had to say about that. Okay, we. I want to. I want to give some attention to the dissent, uh, the dissenting opinions, and simply say that a bottom line on it. You can embellish this if you like, John. Is it's not a colorblind society. You just are held for colorblindness. That's completely disconnected from reality. It's not a colorblind society. Race is still very significant in determining life chances in this country. So how dare you, uh, uh, what does uh, Justice Jackson say? It's a let them eat cake mentality. Uh, you know, uh, you, you, you discern this abstract idea in the 14th Amendment of colorblindness and then you overlay that to, I don't know if this is what Randy said in the month debate with you. I can imagine him possibly saying something like this. And then you uh, overlay, overlay that against the uh, actual social circumstance in which race is in, insinuated into every nook and cranny of, of uh, social life, determining opportunities for people. And you declare the Constitution colorblind. What's up with that? <laughs> and, you know, the answer to that is, yes, race determines outcomes. But the question is. Do you lower grades and test scores, Judge Jackson, with all due respect? And she is good. She's she's doing her job in a way that Amy Coney Barrett, I hear, is not doing as much or as well. But I haven't heard that. Do okay. you do you lower grades and test scores, not just take race into account? Do you do that when your applicant is somebody who has been affected much less by that kind of racist inequity? than many other black people have. Do you treat all black people the same way in that regard because of the remnants, or even you don't want to call it remnants, the indications of racist inequity in society? That's a genuine question. And so, yes, race does still determine things. And so that might mean that you give more support, including changing standards, to disadvantaged black people. Let me phrase that very precisely. Of the people who you give affirmative action to based on disadvantage, maybe proportionately more of them will be black than one might expect in terms of our representation in the population. That's fine. That takes race into account. But to take one of the Cosby kids, so to speak, I guess we're not supposed to use that example anymore because of Cosby's right. adventures, but everybody knows do anything. whatever, what he did. But yeah, the TV show, 
And so we're supposed to give affirmative action to those kids. All of those kids on the show, for those of you who are old enough to remember, all of them going to college, none of them were assessed on their merits. All of them, despite you know that house they grew up in in Brooklyn Heights, et cetera, all of them were assessed in very considerable part on the fact that their brown faces would add to the diversity tableau of the schools that they went to. If we're going to think about how this sort of thing was really going in the, in the I-80s and 90s. And so, no, saying that racism still exists and that societal racism, as they call it, exists is not a self-standing argument for changing standards for all black and Latino faces. And I think on some level, if you were going to have a conversation with Justice Jackson, she'd understand that. But what interests me is that people of her mind wouldn't put it on paper. They seem to think that it's somehow irrelevant, as if there are only three middle-class black kids. But surely, for example, she knows that's not true. I'm perplexed by that. Just perplexed. I have a slightly different take, not disagreeing with you, but just wanting to put the emphasis in a different place, which is there's a non-sequitur involved. You say society is not colorblind. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. That's self-evident, and no one has claimed to the contrary. What we're talking about is the Constitution, not about society. We're talking about the United States Constitution. The Constitution is the compact under which we govern ourselves. It's the law. Now, the society is dynamic. It's not a colorblind society. It's also not a static society. To wit, as you have emphasized, 1965 immigration, liberalization, tens of millions of non-European uh, foreign-born persons coming and making their lives here and their children, uh, they're now a very significant part of the, of the social landscape. The law is the compact under which we're all going to be governed. So the claim that the Constitution is colorblind, that is to say that you know, on its interpretation, the one that we're offering, the ones who are, when I say we, the ones who are uh, with the majority in this case, uh, is a claim about how we're going to interpret the framing documents of the country, not a claim about social outcomes. And there is a burden that hasn't been borne by, uh, with respect, Justice Jackson uh, and Justice Sotomayor, which is a demonstration of the necessity of altering the the uh, governing framework under which we in a multiracial society is supposed to live on behalf of putative or alleged uh, equalizing social effects. I mean, uh, they didn't bear that burden at all as far as I could see. I, I saw very little talk about why the Constitution's uh, interpretation that was being offered by the majority was erroneous. Very little citation. I'm not a lawyer. I'll, I'll say that, but I did read these opinions carefully of the case law and the uh, ruling uh, constitutional precedents on behalf of that position. Because in fact, in Bakke, Justice Powell's controlling opinion explicitly rejects the sociological, you had historical discrimination and therefore you need to do this in order to make up for and to rectify. He rejected that. That's how you get to diversity. They considered and rejected the uh, constitutional interpretation that would seem to be implied by uh, the dissents. So, that. Yeah. I mean, that was frayed as early as 78. Yeah, and that's where you get the diversity argument, which has always been utterly hopeless 
in terms of anything that actually makes sense from A to B, including that diverse kids don't like their diverseness being called upon in classrooms. You read one op-ed after another with that. I have heard countless diverse kids say it, and I felt it. You don't want to have to have the whole class looking at you when slavery comes up or the police come up. And if kids don't want to represent their diverseness in class, then the whole idea that diverseness is key to an education falls apart about 70% right there. Then there are a whole lot of other studies of it. All of this has always been um, a house of cards. And the minute you threaten any of those bottom cards, you're told that you are in bed with the people who supported Plessy versus Ferguson. And that simply isn't true. And there's one thing I want to add to all of this. Um, do a quick parable. I remember when I was at Stanford and I was, um, I was TAing a class and there was a white student. And there was a, a paper that was assigned at the end of the class where you were supposed to do a kind of analysis. You were supposed to address an issue. Nothing rocket science, but you were supposed to address an issue. I'm not going to be specific about the class or anything else because just maybe this person would see themselves depicted and they don't deserve it. But it was a class where there was an essay at the end. And there was this one student who I was, you know, helping with this. And, you know, we batted around the idea that they would analyze this phenomenon, this tendency, this claim, et cetera. But somehow it never quite happened. And what this student handed in was a book report, a book report biography of one person where all I had to do was go get a particular book. I even knew what book it was and paraphrase from the book. And that was not typical of Stanford undergrads. That's not what they're like. The year is 1990. I was impressed when I was a grad student there. I was thinking, boy, these kids are all so smart. And it's not that this person wasn't smart in ways, but that was, it was like, hmm, that was the first time I'd experienced a Stanford student who would do that. Turned out, I got to know the person a little better over, you know, the next few months. That person was a legacy student. That person's father and grandfather had gone to Stanford. And <laughs> I'm afraid that that was the reason that they, they were there. That was about the most they, they could do. So as far as this issue of if they're legacy students, then how come they can't be taking race into account? I find the comparison insulting. There shouldn't be legacy students either. Or if there's some reason that there should be, and there are some arguments along those lines, to compare black and Latino admits with them and say, if that's okay, then why not us? Talk about self-hating. That is one of the most self-hating arguments I have ever heard from a person with a certain amount of melanin in their skin. Alien to a Chinese American, to an Indian American. That's a terrible argument that if it's okay for the legacy students, okay for us no no i'm sorry yeah I, I, well i'm gonna say this i i, I think it's a, a canard I, I think it's a red herring frankly um i actually think universities have are a right to cultivate uh, uh within family cross-generational ties and loyalties on behalf of building the solidarity of their networks of support and so forth because they're, they're philanthropies. Uh, they're, they're, they're a kind of club. I mean, the Constitution prohibits racial discrimination. It doesn't prohibit uh, censoring who comes into my club based upon uh, whether or not I think that they will further the club's objectives. Race and legacy status are not anywhere close to being on the same uh, status in, in terms of the, the basis of discrimination. I know that that would be an unpopular argument, but I think 
I don't see how it's not correct as a matter of logic. Um, so I think that now Roland Fryer, uh, the estimable Roland Fryer, former student of mine, professor of economics at Harvard, well-known uh, commentator and analyst, had a piece in the New York Times. Did you see it? No, I did. Oh man! Well, you should check it out. A couple of three days ago, and we don't have to talk about it. I'll just say what he said, and if you want to move on, we can. Um, he said, "Okay, what's to, what are we to do now?" Harvard and Ivy League. He said, uh, well, here, I'll put something to you. How about establishing a network of special educational academies, like, you know, exam schools in the big cities around the country? Let's say a hundred of a hundred of these schools scattered through big cities with large black and Latino populations throughout the uh, country intended to cultivate potential entrance into your inner sanctum. You take them right at ninth grade and you teach them from ninth grade on and it's intensive and it's, you know, you got to take an exam to get in and whatever. Funded out of the endowments of these institutions and he calculates, he does a back of the envelope calculation. He says the collective endowment of the Ivies is like $80 billion and, you know, he does a per student cost and he turns out that it's a trivial sum within the framework of their total resources that they could be able to do this. <laughs> he said, there's only one reason that, there are two reasons that you wouldn't do this. One, you don't have the money, and I just showed that that was wrong. But the other one is, you don't actually believe that there are kids out there that can uh, meet your standards. But I know you wouldn't want to admit to that in public, so let me embarrass you by <laughs> saying, I dare you, I dare you to do this. <laughs> I've got to read that. I, yeah, I thought that that was just wonderful. I, I thought it was wonderful. He says, don't lower your standards. Bet on these kids. Bet your Put your money where your mouth is. I think that phrase is actually in the article. Put your money where your mouth is. Stop putting your hand behind your neck and looking over a rolling shoulder. Exactly. Exactly. He cites his own research to show that uh, the Harlem Children's Zone charter school uh, uh, efficacy uh, had been demonstrated to you know, a certain degree in terms of his quantitative estimates. And he has his research in Houston where he's also done some education reform experiments showing that adopting a relatively sensible longer school day, longer school year, uh, intensive tutoring, high expectations, uh, strict quality governance over teachers and principals can be shown to practically close the racial achievement gap in a couple of years based on data that he's analyzed. This kind of thing. So he's not talking through his hat. He, he's, he's saying, we know how to do this. And here's the unspoken thing that the first thing I thought, I, I wondered what Randy Weingarten, uh, who's, who runs the uh, teachers union out there, uh, uh, or the National Education Association, I think she's the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association would say about it, because he's daring Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth, Brown, Cornell, Yale, to start dozens of, in effect, high-end, elite-focused charter schools right in the middle of Philadelphia. Right, right in the middle of the Bronx, you know, on the south side of Chicago. And you know what the teachers unions would do? They, they scream bloody murder, <laughs> elitism, cream skimming, so forth and so on. So, 
the main obstacle is not just the recalcitrance of the Ivies to Roland's uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I, I think, you know, it's a serious idea. You know uh, what I want to know is, you know, all those, the, those selective college administrators who are writing op-eds and reading op-eds, why is it that they would find Roland's piece there less interesting than one more piece written by one more professor somewhere talking about how this decision blocks black people from opportunity and that we must, quote unquote, take race into account. Why is that latter editorial more interesting? You really do wonder sometimes how interested people are in doing what they say they're interested in. Are people interested in optics or are they interested in actually forging change in society? And I hate to say that a lot of those people in their suits are more interested in just getting short term optical work done rather than actually making a change in society. And I hate to say that sounds kind of self-centered. They're doing that for their own careers because then they get to be some dean at some other school. Like that, I'm I'm disappointed in those people. Very disappointed in in people like that because Roland is doing real thinking, and look what happened to him. He's doing real thinking, and everybody else is just writing these sententious tracts of liturgy about taking race into account and opportunity. I'm very disappointed. Very. Are you disappointed in this conservative court? I've heard you say not nice things no. about the conservative court. It's too oh. conservative for you, but here they are. So I, you know, they're not all bad. But they got a this, little bit of credit. They got this one right, and I hate having to, you know, see Kagan and Sotomayor and and Jackson and disagreeing with what I'm sure are very good faith opinions of theirs about what a catastrophe this is. And far be it from me to question anything that people who are operating on that mental level do, but I can't help but see that all three of those people are not looking outside of the box. There are certain ways of thinking that they're very conditioned to embracing for various reasons. It's interesting what all three of them are in terms of demographics. I think they're not looking out of the box because this issue is so powerful, so controversial, and often so personal. And I'm sorry, but Okay, well, another thing, Glenn, is the answer is not simply don't take race into account because we must be colorblind. You have to explain where you're coming from on that. Anybody who just says we must be colorblind, as if we're talking about some 1950 textbook, no, that's too simplistic. Why, why, why must we be colorblind when we weren't doing it before? Was it always wrong not to be colorblind, etc.? I don't want to go too far with that. But the idea that this decision is wrong I find it limited, it's limited, but that's just me. I think we're at the beginning of something, actually. I think affirmative action is one thing, but I think the larger question, I mean, the reparations debate, for example, what do you think this court based on, and I, again, I'll say I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I, I just don't see how you can read the opinions here in the um, at Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and UNC cases. And imagine that this court would uphold a broad-based program of, of wealth redistribution based upon race justified by uh, the uh, history of slavery and Jim Crow segregation and redlining and all of that. I, I it just never worked, no. Just doesn't see, I don't know, you got to classify your citizens based on their racial identity. And then they're standing at law in terms of eligibility for the receipt of certain government-sponsored payments that are funded by tax dollars is uh, determined by their racial identity. I, I just don't see it. I, I, you know. The same six people would 
would knock that down in a second. Um, I think reparations is going to have to be a thousand points of light because, yeah, a decision like they would never work. No, the Supremes, as currently configured, would be quite unsympathetic to that. So the wheel is turning. I mean, this is not Brown 1954. It's not nearly so momentous as the uh, rejection of the Plessy versus Ferguson 1896, separate but equal is consistent with the 14th Amendment claim, which was what Brown did. This is not that. But it's up there. It's up there in that same ballpark. Uh, And uh, I don't know if it's not a foreshadowing of a broader shift in this in the nation's sensibility around these racial issues it might be hard to see now as we live in the aftermath of black lives matter in the summer of 2020 and racial reckoning and critical race theory and all of that you know ron DeSantis, whom i know you don't like is in bad odor because he's you know don't say gay and he's trying to roll back crt and and whatever whatever but i i just wonder you know the 1619 project i mean that that the the uh Curriculum battles over how to tell the story about the history of the country, uh, and the, and the upper hand that the anti-racist people, the uh, D'Angelo's and Kendi's of the world, and others seem to have held, and that it may be that we're seeing that kind of uh, sentiment progressively wane. You know, it may be that the, the, the pendulum is shifting here a little bit. Again, I, I think the fact that these were Asian plaintiffs, that they were non-white plaintiffs, there's no way you can't say that the the Japanese were not interred in uh, the Second World War. There, there's no way you can't say the Chinese Exclusion Act that was explicitly discriminatory and anti-Asian and its sentiment didn't happen because it did happen. Um and so on and so forth. Asians are, in fact, victims of hate crimes in some cities where disproportionately the perpetrators are not whites and they're not Asians. They're blacks. That's actually a fact about our actual subsistence. There's 7% of the population now as opposed to 2 or 3% a half century ago, and the numbers are only going to go up. Have you noticed what the 21st century looked like? There are 2 billion people in India and there's a billion and a half people in China. And they're at the cutting edge of the dynamism in the global economy and in the global culture. Uh, So um, this thing, which is a product of America's racial history of slavery, which is a kind of bimodal, bipolar, black-white framing, where blacks have some kind of presumptive upper hand on basis of their victimhood, is not long for this world. I hope that you're correct, because I think that, you know, the plane kind of bumps down the tarmac. I think next is going to be that brown kids are taught, well, black and Latino kids are taught to emphasize their race and how their race has done them wrong in their essays. That will get a whole lot of attention in the essays. And in the meantime, Asian kids have problems, too, sometimes pretty severe ones. They're going to put that in their essays. And Edward Bloom or somebody else is going to come along in about seven years and notice that hardship for brown people, black and Latino people, um, makes it much, much, much more likely for a black kid to get into Harvard or Yale than hardship from an Asian or a South Asian person. And then we're going to be in this all over again. 
So then when it turns out you can't do that, because I think the Supreme Court will strike that down, too, that, that's, that there's going to be some case and it's going to be decided that that was discriminatory, then you really have to get creative. And that's when I think we are, we're really going to enter a new era. Or maybe because of what happened at UC, where they tried that and got dinged for it, maybe the Ivies won't go that route and rank problems of black people as more problematic than problems of a Chinese or a Korean American kid. Maybe they realize that that's not going to work either. So then maybe we could enter the new era right now. But my hopes are not high for that. What I'm finding ironic here is you abandon the SAT and so you don't use tests to screen your kids. Instead, you invite a hardship Olympics. You, you, you invite them to write to you and tell you about the barriers that they've overcome based upon their socioeconomic thing on the premise that blacks will be uh, effective competitors on that realm, uh, less so on the test score realm. But you just completely changed the nature of your institution when you did that. You, in, instead of it being selective based upon uh, uh, outstanding intellectual achievement, it's become selective based upon uh, a comparative assessment of the experiences of hardship uh, based upon social exigency. And that that doesn't seem like the way you want to run a university. It's not a daycare center. It's it's not a social work uh, platform. It, it, it's supposed to be an uh, act, uh, institution fostering intellectual excellence and cultivating the received wisdom of the ages. I mean, it's essentially an intellectual activity. But you get so rewarded for not understanding the difference. For a lot of people with PhDs, they think that it is supposed to be social work. It is supposed to be daycare for, for young adults. And that that is the heart of what education actually is, that you're being enlightened to the fact that such things are necessary. That's what worries me, that pretty soon all the people who think that way are 55 and are basically running the store. That worries me. But maybe that's apocalyptic. All right. You... uh Fans of the Glenn Show have been uh, seeing an hour-long disquisition, John and I, reflecting on the meaning of this momentous Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks, John. All right, guys. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, I have to play this in its entirety for the reasons that these two, one, both are Ivy League professors. And they published this podcast about two days ago. It lasts an hour. I actually think I did it. They did it very well. They did it very concisely. They get to the point. And then, you know, I was like, I have to play the whole thing. I usually don't do that, but I, you know, uh, cause a lot, I know like Brady sometimes play that TikTok news. Uh, they're okay, but they're not that, uh, uh, culture that they're not that, uh, deep in in the in their thought process and discussion so for this one i actually have to uh you know kind of uh uh, uh play the whole thing so just to be fair with these two high intellectuals basically hold on a second i need to put the charger in my laptop Okay, so here's my notes. Uh, this I have quite a number of notes because I listen to them uh, 
probably three times, uh, and uh, while doing something else, of course. The uh, so I made some notes. It's a uh, very interesting that uh, they, they they touch so many areas. First of all, both I think uh, Glenn Professor Glenn Laurie actually will read the decisions, which is like two hundred or three hundred some pages. There's a lot of them. I did not even read it, and. Uh, so just follow his thoughts. I found out to be very beneficial. So again, I don't have any specific critics of these two guys. Uh, I only want to point out some other areas that I wish they, they would cover, you know, uh, cause I, as you guys probably know, I have always said, I believe the reparation in this country is necessary. I believe it is legally justifiable and I believe it can be operationalized. That does not mean that I'm going to let go criminals, street gangsters, and all that. No. I mean, reparation is uh, something else. Now, these two black professors, they, they, they are not that hopeful. As, as a matter of fact, because of this Harvard admission case, uh, they actually believe uh, reparation is uh, less possible because of this decision. I think uh, John McWhorter has said that uh, the six conservative, conservative, conservative justice will easily strike down uh, any reparation policies uh, after this decision was handed out. So, so, so I don't have specific critics. I'm just going to cover some areas they did not cover. Well, did you guys notice there's not a lot of demonstrations after the Harvard admission case was decided? You would think. This decision is uh, bringing back the discrimination against the uh, black students and uh, Latino students. Uh, you do not see a lot of mass uh, demonstrations. And uh, if you count the percentage of uh, I call white liberals or white progressives that for uh, among those who actually come out and protest or voice their strong disgust about this uh, Supreme Court decisions. Uh, they're not that many. Okay. They are very, you know, these are, I call it white liberal, white progressive. They are very tame. And I have, uh, you know, especially when you compare that to the Dobbs decision. And I think one of the e reasons this white liberals and white progressives, they have children too. They all want to send their kids into Harvard because that will, for anyone who have a children going to Harvard, who, who, who have a, their children go to Harvard. It's like a gigantic accomplishment for a parent. So the white liberals and white progressives, in my opinion, behind the closed door, they actually like this decision. And th they don't have anything else to offer. Okay, so this is the first thing I want to comment on. Second is this. If Uncle Tom, because that's the title of today's room, if Uncle Tom applies for Harvard today, what would be the difference? Now, I think Mr. John, uh, Professor John McWhorter said it very well. In the in 1965, the U.S. changed its immigration policy, which opened up the door for a lot of immigrants coming from, not necessarily from European countries, in my opinion. It's actually from Asian countries and uh, South American countries and probably African countries. So if Uncle Tom was alive today, 
he will no longer see this uh, black and white two polar racial dynamics. I think he's going to see a whole bunch of more different peoples in different shapes and forms and all that. So I, I'm very happy that Mr. Uh, Professor McWhorter pointed that out. Next point I want to make is this. Uh, Professor Laurie has mentioned the 14th Amendment. He said, by the framer. I have a little issue with that. The framer I considered are those who wrote the initial constitution. Those are slave owners. Most of them are, I think. All but one are slave owners. The 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment, in my opinion, they are war amendments. These are the second coming, second funding of the United States. As Abraham Lincoln called it, a new liberty. Uh, I think that that's how Abraham Lincoln called it, a new liberty. You know, being true to the to uh, to the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. So the 13th and 14th Amendment, in my opinion, are war amendments almost exclusively made for freed blacks. Okay, I say that for that very important reason. I'm pretty sure, I don't know this for sure, but I'm willing to bet. If you go to the court records, I bet many, many more non-black litigants use the 14th Amendment to sue the government than actual black people, <laughs> okay, since the establishment of the 14th Amendment. Why? Because of the access to the legal services. You don't have the money, you cannot afford a lawyer, and nobody's going to argue for you under the 14th Amendment. And so I want to, so I, I feel sorry that the, uh, that the Professor Laurie did not, I think he said it wrong, that the, the 14th Amendment is by the framer. No, the 14th Amendment is made as a result of the Civil War. It's the second founding of the U.S. And it is after suppressing this insurrectionist, the real insurrectionists from the South. So to me, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, are both federal laws. I, you, I can call it federal black code. These are laws on the book specifically for black people, freed black people. All right. Of course, we know it's the U.S. Supreme Court who abolished the 14th Amendment. It is the U.S. Supreme Court set up this separate but equal doctrine that completely screwed the foundation, educational foundation, for the freed blacks. Okay, I, you know, I wish they they have covered that. The next thing, who benefited from the affirmative action? These two professors both admitted they themselves benefited from the affirmative action in that time. I don't have a problem with it. Okay, I do believe they both come across very intelligent, very good-mannered, just very scholarly. I appreciate that. But I also know that just, Justice Sonia Sotomayor is also a beneficiary of affirmative action. That I have a problem with because I think I don't think she's qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. She's just too lazy. She does not bring good points to argue with. 
All right. And now you can tell these two gentlemen, they are not a big fan of the Harvard admission policy. But I do wish they have could cover this situation. They also acknowledge Sanjo O'Connor, Justice Sanjo O'Connor, in the Michigan Law School admission case, have said affirmative action definitely is a racial discrimination, but as a remedy for the past discrimination against the racial minorities, she is willing to try it for 25 years. Now, I mentioned that in last Sunday, right? But however, here will be a question. Let's say you have a cancer patient. You prescribe a therapy that intend to be last for, say, six months. Okay? You find out after six months, this therapy did not work that well or did not work as intended. Maybe you're wrong or maybe you're correct, but that's your observation. Do you just stop that therapy and without offering another alternative remedy? You know, I thought both the court should have discussed that because they all acknowledge that Sandra Day O'Connor did say that did say say in her opinion that this is something she's willing to try. Gave it twenty five years. Okay, so. So, so I think they should have a talk about that. They don't, they, uh, and of course, apparently, according to Professor Laurie, Chief Justice, Justice Roberts did question that. Chief Justice Roberts basically asked, if your Harvard admission policy is so great, show me how great it is. Show me the exact numbers, the evidence that this policy improved the diversity. Have, if you have not done that, you do not have that diversity. Can you show that? Apparently, according to Chief Justice Roberts, the Harvard University didn't was not able to demonstrate that. Next point. I'm glad they covered the Clarence Thomas's opinion. Clarence Thomas basically saying Harvard University and the University of North Carolina are the original racial segregationists. So for them to have this affirmative action is a little bit suspicious, according to Clarence Thomas. And uh, while well, I, ha- I have said it the more straightforward, I, I call it the, the pigs putting on lipsticks, basically, because they want to virtual signal themselves. Uh, it's probably part of the uh, campaign to get more endowment donations from the alumni and improve the marketability of their graduates. But to me, it's a pigs putting on the lipstick for themselves. And uh, and next point, which I totally agree, I, I should have mentioned that. John McWhorter has said, higher education, even back to colleges and universities, even back in the 1960s, are the least racist venue are the least racist place in America. I totally agree. I I can attest that. When I arrived in America in the 1990, I had a roommate, a Chinese roommate, who has been in the U.S. for probably about four years ahead of me. You know, he shared some of his experience after he landed here in the U.S. He basically said that at workplace, the workplace, 
in the companies are the most racially prejudicial place, at least against the Chinese, if not against the blacks and the and the Latinos. In my opinion, it's still true today. Like I always said, I worked for thirty-one different employers, both as a, a consultant and as a employee. It's still true today. Okay, college and universities is the least suspicious place if you want to go for racial discriminations. And next point. As someone who have benefited from affirmative action, why are Glenn and John not ashamed of themselves when they criticize the the、uh, the, uh, the the affirmative action? You know, to me,、uh, regrettably, I think they should be able to criticize affirmative action. But I regret that they did not. As someone who benefited from affirmative action, again, as a therapy, as a therapeutic, pub, it's a public policy to 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 remedy the past wrongs. And you, John、uh, McWhorter, you, Glenn Laurie, both benefited from this therapy. And now the U.S.、Uh, by the way, that you should know, the U.S. Supreme Court is the one who started this disease, this cancer, to start with. I wish you both should have a talk about. If you take away this therapy, should there be a replacement, an alternative? What you would suggest? Now, my this question is not a cheap shot against them. I'm not accusing them of yanking the ladder after they have used it. I'm just saying, as they have benefited from a therapy, from a remedy, now the U.S. Supreme Court is taking it away. Would you please consider: Is there any alternative therapy? I think they they're smart enough to discuss that. They cannot just remain just I'm remain just negative about the affirmative action to start to finish. I think it's a little bit of、uh, what I say incomplete in their analysis. And next point, I'm very glad both of them mentioned the Asians and the South Asians tradition of pursuing excellence in education. Now. I myself know for fact. This is a historic fact. In all the dynasties in Chinese history for thousand years, it is a Chinese tradition of what's called the meritorious social advancement scheme, meaning that regardless of your wealth, regardless the poverty level of your family, the entire village is the root for whoever students excel academically. Regardless of their wealth or their social statuses, that's a Chinese tra- tra- tradition. That's why I think、uh, either Glenn or John mentioned you can have a little Asian kids living in a two-bedroom apartment, barely get、uh, the family barely get ends meet, but somehow that kid get it at school and very quickly and excel among all students. And there's no explanation. <laughs> that's called talent, I guess. I have seen that myself in my lifetime. In China, kids born out of、uh, farmers, 
home, you know, peasant's family. You know, the both parents are illiterate, but somehow their children is like so smart, so bright, and it's always like beat the entire class. <laughs> this is so many examples. I cannot, I cannot even you know count them. In China, there is a very, very deep-rooted tradition that, regardless of your social status, if you if your kids excel at school, the entire village, the poor and the rich, will rule for you to go through those national examination with the with the royal palace or whatever, and get appointed as official because of your achievement in education. And that is true. So I, the reason I bring it up is this: it is culturally, legally hurtful for Harvard University to do this uh, personality test on Asians. <laughs> Somehow accuse Asians of a, from a personal character perspective, some kind of a weaker candidate. It is particularly hurtful for Harvard University to do that. And uh, and the last thing I want to mention is this, and which I, I should have mentioned uh, uh, last Sunday. Harvard admission policy, in my opinion, is a ethno-political invention by the white elitists and the white privilegists. Okay, I have said Harvard University is trying to put the lipstick on a pig, because Harvard he has its own history of a you know being the Post child of uh, elitism. Okay. In the Harvard scheme of admission, I have said in the last Sunday that it's to, to Harvard, it's okay for John to rob Peter to pay Paul. There is another example of a robbing Peter to pay Paul. If you Google this, Liberia, Liberia is a African country, how library is a form. I'm going to, because I had a, a acquaintance in New York City uh, who is a pretty high up uh, guy in Bronx, New York. He came from Liberia. And he, when I was in uh, contact with him, he just urged me to team up with him to do some business in Liberia because he is aware of the fact there's a lot of Chinese investment coming towards uh, Africa. So he really want me getting involved. So he taught me a little bit about uh, the history of Liberia. Liberia is a result of this uh, Rob Peter to pay Paul scheme. Liberia began in the early 19th century as a project of the American Colonization Society, which you believe black people would face better chances for freedom and prosperity in Africa than in the United States. <laughs> Liberia is a scheme, is a product of a scheme for the white Americans to send the, uh, to send freed blacks back to Africa. Okay, this is before the separate but equal segregation policy come out. And however, as you can imagine, Liberia has its native populations. But that's okay. The white Americans taught these uh, 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 freed blacks, and some of them are Afro-Caribbeans, teach them how to use guns, 
relocate them to Liberia in mass. I think there's like a fifteen thousand of 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 uh, 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 of them was sent there. They were taught how to colonize the native people in Liberia. The American Liberian settlers did not relate well to the indigenous peoples they encountered. Basically, the U.S. whites encouraged these free blacks to go back to Africa, specifically go to Liberia, to do their colonial, to do their version of a colonialism. Okay, and uh, because this uh, this uh, uh, this guy I got acquainted with from Liberia, he told me he actually has a Chinese blood in his family. Because I I look it up. Liberia has uh, 20 different ethnic groups as of today. So you can imagine when these group of uh, 16,000 American blacks were sent back to Liberia to form their own country by looting the native land, you will have racial tensions, political tensions. And that is the, actually mapping the first Rob Peter to pay Paul scheme of things. And that did not end well. Liberia is not a good place today. Because as a matter of fact, you know, before I commit myself, I did some research on Liberia. Very, very unstable country. A lot of groups, just like, you know, quite a number of other African countries. Why? Because of this long-standing racial divide. By whom? Actually, by this society, again, it's called the American Colonization Society. So what Harvard ad- admission policy did is, is under the, you know, is along the same thought process, same line of thinking of a Rob Peter to pay Paul. All right. It's not going to end well because, like I said, if Uncle Tom applied for Harvard today, he is not going to face just competitors from white population or black population. He will have a, a number of ethnic groups to compete with. It's not going to be the same. So, in, a, in, a, in conclusion, I'm going to say this. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that Professor Glenn Laurie used the word multiracial in multiple situations in that podcast. I love it because I always said this country is heading towards a multiracial society, whether you like it or not. It's no longer a black or white world. It is a multiracial society. If actually, if Uncle Tom is alive today, he will be overwhelmed by that multiracial phenomena in America. And uh, as uh, Professor Laurie has said, I mean, uh, I mean, sorry, Professor jo- uh, John McWhorter said, the 1965 immigration policy change in America has changed the uh, the mix of our population. Right. What's that? 
Uh, you want to say uh, something? You say something? Uh, yeah, I was curious about something. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt, though, but no, you no, said no, in no, conclusion. No, no. So, yeah, yeah, I wanted to wait until you're done with your presentation. No, no, go ahead. Um, no, no, go ahead. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I'm curious about something, you know, like, personally, I don't agree with reparations. And, you know, we could discuss why if you're interested. But uh, as far as, like, the building of the railroad, from what I understand, uh, Chinese people, like, uh, there were Chinese, um, what do you call it, uh, oligarchs or, you know, like uh, rich, the whatever you call your, your uh, noble people. Um, they would bring over slaves, Chinese slaves that helped to build the railroad. And then when, you know, their work was done or whatever it was, they, they sent them back or I, I'm sure some stayed here too, right? Do, like, what is the history there? Can you... <laughs> Can you give some insight so on that? It's not a. So it's not a. It's a. It's a. You probably know this you word. You know this word. Coolie. Coolie. C O O L I. I think it's a. It's a somewhat considered derogatory. Okay. I personally don't think. I personally don't think The coolie in Chinese just means bitter labor. So in English, will be, be hard labor. Hard labor. Okay. So these are so the people who are the people for their peasants, mostly. So you will have so it. Today, you will call them human traffickers. human traffickers. Yes. Right? They know right. where. That's where what I was getting at. Yep. Our labor, labor are needed. needed. Our labor is needed. needed. So, so they will sign them up. Ship them to America. Like I said, before. In in, in the early days, everyone, everyone coming come into, the, into the in the U S. They are all indentured labor. Yes, including the African. The same thing with the. They are called the for you know because they don't have the money to pay the fare the the to get on the board. Yes, like the coyotes from Mexico, right? Exactly. So they have a promissory note. Uh, or, uh, or, you know, they will have some kind know, of a, they will have some kind of a, financially, financially, with expectation with that, they that they arrive in America, 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 America do the hard labor, do the hard labor, get the money, get the pay, money back. pay back. Right. Okay. So my question is, uh, you know, just like I said, out of curiosity, uh, with the reparations, would that be, you know, a situation where they should be compensated also? <sighs> Uh, uh, I, I, I understand when you tell me you disagree with the reparations. In fact, in this episode, he's a cool guy. I think it's John McWhorter. He has said, reparations is only a possible. He said, reparations must be a thousand points of light. That's his word. That's I think. his word. I think. I agree with him. I agree with him. Reparation okay. is a controversial, is a controversial topic. topic, and I and actually I have actually a lot of explanation, a lot of theory, why this why is not this only, not only uh, legally justified, legally justified but, it's but it's a very long story. story. But I just want right. to remind you this: remind you, this. Uh, uh, you act about, about Chinese. I would say no I to Chinese, but I want to say this. 
the internment of the Japanese in the Second World War, they did receive reparation. It's about $25,000 per person. It's authorized by Congress. I think it's 1988. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually wasn't aware of that. <clears throat> uh, and I'm kind of surprised, but, um, and yeah, I, I agree that it's a whole huge topic on its own and, and like this, uh, show, this episode is long enough, so I, we could definitely cover it, uh, another time, but, um, yeah, that was mainly, I, and I was also curious if you've ever seen the movie Cinderella Man or are familiar with the, uh, you know, the plight of the immigrants, the European immigrants in the Northeast. I am I, I don't get my education from Hollywood. I know, like I start off with the movie from Hollywood and then I check into the history of it, you know, like uh, Vikings and the Last Kingdom. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not Hollywood, obviously, but um, I, it's two shows. Uh, one was from the BBC and the other was from the History Channel, I think, originally. But, um, yeah, I start off with watching the show and that gets me interested in the subject. And then I look into the history and it's like fascinating. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, yeah, I the and that's the only reason I ask is because as far as I know, well, there are a lot of movies about the subject, I think, a lot of older movies, but I'm not like into classic, uh, you know, like I, 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 classic cinema, we'll put it that way. Um, <clears throat> but that was a modern movie that uh, it was rare for the fact that it touched on that whole subject matter. And then also um, Howard Zinn's uh, The History of what was it? The People's History of the United States. Um, that was good. And then uh, Oliver Stone's The Untold History of the United States uh, kind of touch on that kind of stuff. So I was just curious if you were familiar. I appreciate it. Uh, could you mute yourself, uh, Heidi? So I will finish off here. So I will say if Uncle Tom was alive today, he would, he will, he will have to know the rise of China and other countries that I've never seen before because uh, Back in Uncle Tom's day, you know, America is the only shop in town, right? So you do not have anything to compare with. And so I think he would probably will be, you know, will, will be influenced by, by that, you know. The, uh, another thing I want to talk about is, uh, I should be able to finish pretty soon. Uh, two hours is not too bad. The foundation of higher education for the black population is destroyed, is destroyed by the U.S. Supreme Court in Plassey versus Ferguson. Okay. In the decision on the Harvard admission case, I think the Supreme Court cleverly used the words that the court, along with the country, abolished the 14th Amendment. To me, I hold the court solely responsible for the abolishment of the 14th Amendment. So, because why Harvard come up with this? It's because Remember what um, Professor John McWhorter said. They want to lower the score for black students and Latinos, uh, Hispanic students. Okay, why the black students have a lower score? It's because the our public education is a total fraud. We collect the most ta property taxes and fund the most expensive public education all the way to high school. But we don't produce 
the educational outcome, and we do produce a tremendous racial gap in the educational achievement. And you know, I'm for unions, but teachers' union. Think about teachers' union. If teachers are government employees, okay. If they, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not pointing fingers at any specific union or that. As, you know, assuming a teachers are government employees, and if these teachers, a particular teacher or group of teacher, continue to jeopardize the educational opportunity of black youth, is that another government wrong against the black people? I would like to discuss that. Because you have to, you know, secure the foundation of the education. Because I know、uh, Glenn Rory and、uh, John McWhorter is has talked about it. You know, he they talk about you know,、uh, the teachers' union is a major force against advancement of black young black students in the public education. I'm not saying they're right or they're wrong. I'm just saying this is the area that should be covered. You know, and lastly, I want to just address what.、Uh, Uh, Heidi has said because、uh, this case, Harvard admission case, is about affirmative action, and affirmative action is a form of reparation, right? So, and Heidi has said, and I'm not surprised that he personally is against reparation. I believe that reparation is something ha- involving a lot of uh, 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 legal justification, a lot of work. To legally justify, and also there's a lot of planning in the logistics how to make it happen, in order not to make it like as if where the government is forcing white people to pay black people. That's how, that's that should not be the way. It has to be a consensus that something has to be done, and and the remedy. Is something that are not a bitter pill for the entire general population to swallow, including the whites. Okay, it's complicated. I'm not going to go over that. I have said, I have given an example in the past in Delaware.、Uh, you know where you know that is a good example that why reparations needed because,、uh, to me, in my opinion, the reparation to me personally, I'm not black as you guys know. By reading the history, to me, a lot of say people say, "Oh, reparations for the slavery." No, I actually think what happened after the Civil War, what happened among these Plessy versus Ferguson, the separate but equal, all these racial violence after the Civil War is itself ju- is justify reparation, not just the slavery, because for slavery, folks may say, "Well." There's six hundred thousand people died, mostly whites. Half of them are whites fighting for the freedom of the、uh, slaves. How you want their descendants to pay for slavery? You know how you can justify that? That's true, but I do know this: racial segregation is a, both a practice in the South and in the North. Despite the fact that slavery. Is no good in the north, but segregation, racial segregation in the north, is totally legal, and it's totally legal practice. Okay, so, so, but again, like I said, reparation is a huge, huge topic. 
it's going to take a while for me to get that out. But, uh, but I want to touch this uh, Harvard admission case as much as I can. And uh, I, I'm quite thankful that these two guys has uh, uh, spoken out and uh, I enjoyed their conversation. I just want to add something else. And uh, it's not a criticism of them, but it's, I just want to add some additional things that I think they should have covered. I could have discussed in the future. So uh, thank you guys for stick around and uh, I greatly appreciate it. Hi, Heidi. And, uh, and, uh, I will hopefully see you next next Sunday. Have, Have a good night. night. Yep. Bye. Bye. Bye.